The following recording is from the pulpit at Northwest Baptist Church in Bradenton, Florida. For more sermons, please visit our website, nwbcbradenton.org. We'd also love to hear how you have been blessed by this ministry, so please let us know by emailing us at office at nwbcbradenton.org. Open up your Bibles to this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is your first time here. We are making our way through 1 Corinthians. We preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. Today is the 30th sermon in 1 Corinthians. We love, or I love, stats. I love stats. I'm a baseball guy. And did you know that spring training has sprung? Yes. Yes. And in case you're looking for another number, today is 3,962 days of being your pastor. But who's counting? All right. (laughs) That's not in my notes. It just came out. But anyway. Um, And you'll probably hear it again. But two weeks from today, two weeks from today will be 10,000 days since Lori and I went on our first date. But who's counting either? (laughs) I like that stuff. I know I'm whatever. Let's get to the important stuff, shall we? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's ask God to bless our time together this morning. Father, help us now as we redirect our hearts and minds to your word. God, bless us as we look at this text and that you might unravel the mysteries before us. And apply it deep into our hearts through your spirit. Thank you, God, for what you're doing for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. In chapter 10, we come to the end of Paul's argument and teaching to the Corinthians on the matter of Christian liberty. This began in chapter 8. And in chapter chapter 8, he lays down the motivations of Christian liberty. In chapter 9, he warns the Corinthians on how their Christian liberty affects other people. And in chapter 10, he changes his focus by showing how Christian liberty not just affects other people, but it affects themselves. And Paul's warning here in chapter 10 is about what happens when you play or get too close to sin, which is really at the heart of Christian liberty. Last week, we saw that Paul was encouraging them By saying that God is faithful in helping to deliver them from any and all temptation. Last week we we saw that Paul gave warnings based on Old Testament Israel's example. You don't have to give in to your sin. You don't have to give up. There's always a way out. There's always a way of escape. Learn from this Exodus generation. The Exodus generation that left Egypt all fell in the wilderness under God's judgment. All of them except two. And they felt the consequences of their sin except Joshua and Caleb who made it to the promised land. And so that's the context of warnings of how Christian liberty affects them. And Paul has been referring to Israel's example in the first 13 verses of this chapter. And now we go to verse 14. Paul says, therefore, so based on what he just said, all the examples he laid out for Israel, therefore, my beloved, he loves them. Paul's not writing as a stranger. He loves them. 
And he tells them this in love. Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And now here's the part of the sermon where some people are saying, okay, Dan, I'm checking out because this sermon does not apply to me. I'm not in danger of eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Or I'm not bowing down in my home or in my life to other statues or other gods. So let me just hit the snooze button until this sermon is done. (laughs) Flee from idolatry. (laughs) Let me say this very slowly and clearly. You and I are idolaters. What is idolatry? Idolatry is to worship anything or anyone other than God himself. Therefore, you and I are idolaters because we do this. How? Well, if we are very honest with ourselves, which hopefully we will be today, there is nobody or anything on this earth that you worship more than you. You are your own biggest idol you see at the heart of idolatry is worship every sin therefore is a worship of you and of me when we sin we are making a decision we are choosing my wants my comfort my pleasure my way than what God has said. And when we choose ourselves over God's commandments, over God himself, we're worshiping. Actually, we never stop worshiping. It's not if you will worship. It's who or what you will worship today. And this is the constant battle that we face every day. What is sin? Sin is the breaking of God's law. So by definition, sin is not to worship God because we're disobeying him. It's a rebellion of him. It's choosing ourselves in spite of what God has said. So when we lust for someone who is not our spouse, we worship. When children disobey or disrespect their parents, They're worshiping. When we lie or steal or covet or kill or hold bitterness or gossip or disobey God in any way, we're worshiping. Idolatry is at the heart of all sin. Sometimes we just like to say, well, I don't have a statue or an, an idol in front of me. Well, you have your own heart. And therefore... This sermon is applicable to everyone in this room, including myself. And therefore, the warning is to be heeded. What's the warning? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word flee, of course, means run. Literally means escape, which is what the word he uses in the previous verse. There's always a way of escape. 
from any and all temptation. You don't have to say yes. You don't have to cave. You don't have to surrender. Run. When you run, when you flee from idolatry, you are running to God. You are redirecting your worship. When you resist temptation, when you choose God over your sin, you worship God by giving him his worth and weightiness and glory. See, the question that the Corinthians are asking basically is, how free are we to get so close without sinning? And what Paul is saying is, why are you even playing that game? Run! Run from idolatry. Run from this temptation to sin. And they get so close in your freedom. I think a good example of this, I always think of this example, is Joseph in Potiphar's house. In Genesis 39, of course, Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave. You all know the story, the coat of many colors. And Joseph winds up in Egypt by God's providence. And he became a caretaker in a man named Potiphar's house. And he was in charge of his house and in charge of his estate and his servants. And Joseph was blessed by God and given his position of favor. Of course, while Joseph was there, Potiphar's wife was seducing him. Every day she seduced him and flirted with him. And the temptation for Joseph to give in to his master's wife was great. In Genesis 39 verse 9, it says, Joseph says, after being confronted by Potiphar's wife for the last time, He is not greater in this house than I am, speaking of Potiphar, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, And none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. You see, that day Joseph faced a decision. Whom will I worship? And notice when Joseph is confronted with with the temptation, he says to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this great wickedness And sin against God. He knows. Joseph knows in that moment he has a choice. Do I worship God or do I worship myself? I know what my flesh wants to do. But in order to gratify my own self. I have to disobey God. Sin against God. How can I do that? Joseph knows that he is in no position to worship himself, to gratify his own desires and lust. And therefore, he does the only sensible thing. He runs. He runs away. She grabs him, keeps his coat, but he got out of the house. This is what Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to do. Flee from idolatry. Run away. Escape. You don't have to give in. You don't have to cave. Run away. Don't ask yourself, how close can I get and have it be okay? Because you, if you don't take heed, 
you think you're standing, what does he warn them? You will fall. Be careful. And so, with the temptation, there's always provided a way of escape. Run, flee. Look at verse 15. Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Paul's about to break it down even further for them. He says, come on, guys. I know I'm not speaking to a bunch of dummies here. Think about what this means. Think through this whole ordeal. And make a decision about eating this meat. See, the whole, this whole three chapters is about a question they ask Paul. Is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul gives different definitions. If you're just going to the marketplace and you don't know where the meat comes from, it's fine. Because meat is meat. Idols are not real. Eat the meat, you're not sinning. But the question in chapter 10 is changed a little bit. Because it goes from just going to the marketplace or going to someone's backyard for a barbecue to then going to the temple of a pagan god participating in the worship service while the animal is being sacrificed and then eating that animal that was just sacrificed to that god this is the this is the, what's at, this is the context of what Paul is trying to say i know you're not dummies i want you to think about this and judge for yourselves make a decision because i know you're smart how will this not just affect other people. He deals with that in chapter 9. Because in chapter 9, someone could see you in the temple. They could stumble and fall back into their life of idolatry. But in chapter 10, he's talking about their life. How will this affect you? How will you fall? Or he says at the end of chapter 9, how will you possibly be disqualified? You've got to make a decision if pursuing this meat is a good thing. Think about the ramifications. Think about how it will affect you. Because here's the truth. And here's probably the main point of the sermon. So listen up. Worship is never neutral. Or we could say this. Sin is not neutral. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground with sin or with worship. Sin is always against God 100% of the time. By definition, sin is the breaking of God's law. So 100% of the time, sin is always against God. Like Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Secondly, because sin is not neutral, sin will damage you. And also leave a wake of hurt to those around you. Sin, worship are not neutral. You see, the oldest lie in the book is this. This won't affect me. This will have no damage to my soul or spirit. I can watch this, I can go there, I can be with these people and be unaffected because I'm free in Jesus and forgiven already. The Corinthians were expressing this liberty beyond just eating meat. 
Now they're not only saying, yeah, we can eat the meat. Now they're saying, we can go to the temple of a pagan god, worship in the sacrifice of this meat, and still have it not affect us. That's the oldest lie. Sin always affects you. Worship always affects you. Maybe somebody will say, well, it's just one time. What's it going to hurt? Many lives have been destroyed by that statement. This won't affect others. It's a personal decision. No, no, no. Sin is not neutral. Worship affects us. We either worship God and become holy, become growing in our sanctification, or we will sin and worship ourselves and be driven further away from God in fellowship. And the way Paul will illustrate this is brilliant. He wants them to separate this idea that going to the pagan temple will not affect them. He's trying to destroy that argument, and this is how he does it. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What's, all, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's trying to help these sensible people, smart people, make the correlation between the two. What? The Lord's Supper and the supper at an idol's temple. Is the Lord's Supper a worship of the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you think? So then is the meal at an idol's temple. You cannot separate the two. As the Lord's Supper has a positive effect on the believer who partakes and worships Christ and is therefore made more sanctified and closer to God by the presence of Jesus, so is an, a meal at an idol's temple. And he uses very interesting words here. He says, Paul starts with the cup, which represents, of course, the blood of Christ. When you sit down, you remember Jesus by drinking the cup, drinking the wine, and we remember his shed blood. Paul says, we are participating in the blood of Jesus. When we take the bread and we break it, we are participating. The word participating there is this Greek word koinonia. It's a word that we're very familiar with. It's the word that's translated as fellowship. The word fellowship means to have in common or to have a partnership. So when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper and we're remembering the Lord by drinking the cup, we are participating saying that I have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of the Lamb which has washed away my sins forever. It's not a foreign thing to me. It is something I am in. It is something I am involved in. I am participated. That God has washed me clean. He has given me fellowship with Christ in the cup, in the blood. 
And now I have a partnership with Christ because he owns me. And now I am one in him. The same way with the, the, the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ. He says when we break the bread, do you understand that you are benefiting from the broken body of the Lord Jesus? He has been broken for you. His wrath, the wrath of God the Father has been poured upon Christ for you. So when you participate, as you remember him in the Lord's Supper, you, something is happening. The Lord's Supper is not a neutral thing because it's worship. And worship is never neutral. You either leave worship being drawn closer to God or you leave worship hardened to the things of God. This is how a believer and unbeliever react to worship. They rejoice in Christ or they become even more blind or deaf or hardened in their heart. This is what the scripture says. The only thing that will break that hardness of heart is the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Worship is never neutral. You either move closer to God or away from God. And so we are participating. We have fellowship with Christ in the supper. The Lord's Supper is so important. We observed it last Sunday. And there's the Lord's Supper, when you understand the nature of it, and understanding the fellowship and the partnership and the participation we have with Christ in it, it is a beautiful thing that will really strengthen your faith. But to understand the nature of it is something that even the Protestant reformers couldn't agree on over the years. The Reformation happened, of course, in the 15 and 1600s. And the Protestant reformers all disagreed on the nature of the Lord's Supper. What they could agree on is that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, believed in transubstantiation, which means that when you put the bread and cup in your mouth, it literally becomes the body and blood of the Lord. That's nowhere found in Scripture and is heresy. Martin Luther's view of the Lord's Supper said that he believed that Christ was still physically present in a physical way, even though the elements didn't transform into it like the Catholics believed. Ulrich Zwingli believed that the Lord's Supper was just a memorial, and there was no significance in it except just a time to remember. He didn't see any participation or spiritual movement or benefit in it except it just being a memory John Calvin taught when we observe the supper that Christ is not physically present in any physical way whatsoever, but he is spiritually present with his people, which is what I believe this verse is teaching. We have a participation. We have a fellowship. When we take of the Lord's Supper, it's as if the Lord Jesus is right here with us, and he's fellowshipping with us, and he's participating with us, reminding us, strengthening our faith as we confess our sins and remember the gospel. We believe and teach here Calvin's view of the supper because we find it to be biblical. Because something happens in us when we observe the supper. When we participate with Christ. He sanctifies us, purifies us. The Lord's Supper is not a neutral thing. Christ is working in us and through us. So therefore, 
When you eat the meat at a worship service of this pagan God, who now this meat is now sacrificed to, something is happening in you, Corinthians. You're smart people. Think about it. As the Lord's Supper is a way to worship Christ, the, this supper to this God, false God, is a way that will influence you and worship him. But Paul goes on. Not only do we have fellowship with Christ in the supper, but we also have fellowship with one another. He says in verse 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Again, what he's saying is there's one bread, but guess what? We all eat the same bread. We all drink the same cup. And therefore, not only do we have a participation with Christ, but we have a participation and fellowship with God's people. The Lord's table brings us together. It unites us together. It shows us that we're the body of Christ together. It says that we all need to feast on him spiritually. That we all need the same grace, the same Savior. We have the same sin which has condemned us from our birth and we all need to be saved. And so as the Lord's Supper, when you partake it in your church, Paul says to them, when you break that bread with one another, you are saying, I not only belong to Christ, but the same people who are eating the same bread that we broke, I belong to them as well. And this is why you can't do the Lord's Supper at home or by yourself. It's a commandment given to the church because it's much more than just you and Jesus time. It's a fellowship with God's people. You're the body of Christ with God's people together. So what's Paul's point here? It's impossible when you eat that meat in the temple for you not to fellowship with that false God. And also, what you're saying is that you are aligning yourself with those who are worshiping this false God. Who are you? Do you belong to Jesus or do you belong to this idol? You can't do both. You can't do both. You are, are you united to Christ or are you united to the idol's flock? Oh, something is happening in you. Spiritually, as we're united to Christ. Maybe one of the Corinthians were saying, Paul, Paul, come on. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm just here for the steak. Have you tried it over there? They have the best cuts. The best seasoning. That meat, yes, I know it was sacrificed, but you can't get it just in the market. You got to go here, man. It tastes really good at the temple. And yes, you got to sit through the hoopla and the rituals and all this stuff, but boy, is it good stuff. No, Corinthians, when you do so, you join yourself spiritually to that idol and to the people of that idol, just as you do with the Lord's Supper and the church. Flee from idolatry. Why are you playing around with that? Don't you understand that sin affects you? That worship is never neutral? You're going to that temple thinking it won't affect you, and it is affecting you and affecting other people. He says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
In Old Testament Israel, when a sacrifice was made, the priest would make the sacrifice. The priest would offer it as a burnt offering. He would eat. The people would eat. It was for the Lord. And everyone who ate participated in the, and aligned themselves with God's covenant blessings on the nation of Israel, which was the purpose behind that sacrifice. So Paul says, you guys should know better. Just like Old Testament Israel participated in the sacrifices and aligned themselves with God's covenant blessings, so are you when you do this at the idol's temple. Worship is not neutral. In verse 19, Paul says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Remember, because Paul said earlier, you can go to the market and buy a piece of meat and not know where it comes from. And guess what? It's fine. It's not a sin. Yes, you have the freedom to eat that. Because why? Idols aren't real. But when you go to the temple and you participate in their rituals and you eat that, guess what? It becomes very real. Because there's something more at stake than that idol. That idol is, does not exist. But there's something behind the idol that is very real that you're opening yourself up to. That you don't want to mess around with. An idol is nothing but stone or wood. But what is behind the idols? What is behind this ceremony? What is behind this? Look at verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with what? Demons. Here he uses that word again. Participants fellowship. The gods behind these idols may not exist, but you still have fellowship with them, and it's demonic in origin. The demons who hate God, the demons who hate the Lord Jesus, the demons who are deceiving people and blinding others to see the gospel, you are fellowshipping with these very demons. What are you doing, Corinthians? It is affecting you. It is affecting others who see you there. You are sensible people. You're smart people. Flee from idolatry. You are joining the demons in the very deception for the sake of your appetite and taste buds. How stupid does that sound? Worship is not neutral. Idolatry is worship. Idolatry is sin. So when you sin, something happens to you. Something happens to you in that temple. And what is it? I think the answer is found in a verse in Psalm 135. In Psalm 135, this is what the psalmist writes. He's speaking about idolatry Warnings against the people of Israel to flee from idols. And he describes what idols are. Listen to this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Now look at this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
You see, idolatry isn't neutral. Idol makers and idolaters, according to Psalm 135, become like the idols they make and worship. And how are they described? Mute, blind, deaf, and dead. Those who make them and who put their trust in them become like them. Of course, not just from a physical standpoint, but from a spiritual one as well. Have you ever heard the expression, you are what you eat? Well, let me put it this way. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. You want to be holy? You worship God and run from sin. Deny your flesh. Deny yourself. Honor God. Worship God. Love God. And you will be like what you worship. The whole point of being a Christian is to be Christ-like. That's who we are. We're made in the image of God. We represent our creator. All human beings do. But a Christian is one who's been made new in Jesus Christ. Your sanctification is the journey of taking you from your old self to your new self in Jesus Christ. You want to fight sin? Run from idols. You want to grow in your sanctification? Run to God. Leave your sin behind. The reason why so many of us aren't growing in our faith is because we've become what we worship. And we've seen this principle in society, haven't we? With each generation, there's a softening or desensitizing towards sin or even a redefinition of sin. Here you have one generation thinks X is unthinkable. The next generation comes... And it's all of a sudden that sin is now tolerable. The generation after that accepts what their previous generation thought was tolerable as truth. And then the generation after that sees that thing as a right. So what once was unthinkable becomes tolerable, becomes acceptable... And now becomes, you can't take that away from me. We become what we worship. That one little sin you did, little. There's no such thing as a little sin. That just one time, you become what you worship. The reason it becomes increasingly more difficult to give up these things that overwhelm our lives is because we become what we worship. And every time you give in, every time you cave in, every time you give up, say, this is just who I am. It's how God made me. I'm going to struggle with this the rest of my life. Guess what? Your conscience becomes seared. And eventually what you once felt guilty about at the beginning, all of a sudden you're making excuses to do it and it becomes commonplace. And then all of a sudden, you don't feel so bad about it after time. Why? Because what once was foreign to you 
Now you've become what you worship. It becomes a part of your life. This is why the warning is given. Flee from idolatry. Why? It only takes a little. Leaven. To leaven the whole lump. Only takes a little bit of indiscretion. Only a little bit of, let me see how close I can get. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you become what you worship. That's what Paul is trying to explain to these Corinthians. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You can't have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with demons. You can't, you can't take the Lord's Supper at church and then go worship this false god in the name of a juicy steak. Because it's not neutral. There's a simple answer to this dilemma, Corinthians. Run. Flee. Escape. Don't even darken the door of the temple. Don't even entertain the meat that is being offered up in that temple. You can't do that. It's inconsistent. It doesn't mix. You can't take the Lord's Supper and then go worship at an idol's temple. And we, when we apply that to our lives... We need to ask ourselves that question. Right? We're becoming what we worship. Are we becoming more like God, more godly, more Christ-like? Are we fleeing from sin? Are we repenting from sin? I'm not saying, hey, look, we're all, we're all sinners, and we've all sinned this week. We have all have our struggles. We all have our weaknesses. The question is, what direction are you headed? I'm not saying if you don't stumble and fall and get back up and keep moving forward. I get it. Sometimes you take two steps forward and a step back. And sometimes two steps back and a step forward. I understand. Welcome to life. Welcome to the journeys of being a real Christian. There's a war that wages, wages within us. And it's not easy. We don't fight against flesh or blood. We fight against the principality and powers of the air. We wrestle against our flesh. We wrestle against demons. But what direction are you headed do you care? Are you becoming what you worship more godly? Are you becoming what you worship, which is your own flesh? Is your conscience becoming more seared where you care less about what you do now than you did before? That's not a place that I would envy for any person. For one, great repentance is needed. A great work of the Spirit is needed to overturn our hearts back to God. And the gospel, the gospel is the power to do it. Another way, another way to understand what Paul is saying here, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Have you heard the expression when someone has a, a potty mouth and someone says to them, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? That's what Paul's saying to them here. Wait, 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 wait. You worship the Lord? 
by drinking the cup here and the cup there? Do you worship the Lord like that? You think that's not going to affect you? Oh, you got another thing coming, Corinthians. It's not neutral. You're going one way or the other. Which way are you headed? Towards God or towards your sin? Either way is worship. And every day it's a battle. Who will I worship? Me or God? Me or God? And very interestingly, Paul has already laid out this argument in chapter 6, four chapters ago. In chapter 10, he's dealing with idolatry. In chapter 6, he deals with sexual immorality. Just turn there with me and you'll see the exact same argument. Paul makes the exact same argument the same way. Verse 18, what, just read that first sentence with me. What does it say? Flee from sexual immorality. Oh, you could do better than that. Flee from sexual immorality. Same way. Flee from idolatry. Flee from sexual immorality. Same command. Run. And now he addresses the, 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 that sin is not neutral. He says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What's he saying? It's not neutral. You Corinthians who think you could live sexually free any way you want, guess what? You can't. Sin is not neutral. It will affect you to the core. And number three, that matter of worship. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Now Paul deals with the matter of worship. You can't use your body for demons. You can't drink the cup of demons and the cup of God. You can't use your body as who is a temple of the Holy Spirit to worship God and to be use your same body, which is meant to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, as a temple for prostitutes. That's what he says in chapter 6. And then he says... Verse 20, so glorify God in your body. That's the answer. What's the answer? Worship. Worship correctly. Glorify God. And Paul, we're not going to get there today, next week, maybe. Next week, we will see. At the end of chapter 10, 31, how does he conclude this whole matter of whether we can eat or drink? Whether therefore you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Same argument, same way. Flee from idolatry, flee from sexual morality. Sin is not neutral. Your body's not neutral. You can't use your body for demons and for God. You can't have your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and for prostitutes. Glorify God in your body. Glorify God, whether you eat or drink. Same argument, two different situations. Do you think Paul's being, you think Paul's being consistent? Saul comes down to worship. Who will I glorify? My freedom is not more important than that. I think one thing we ought to worry much more about than our Christian freedom is our holiness. How are we living our lives that is bearing fruits of repentance, showing what the Lord is doing in our lives? Like we're all messed up people that need to be sanctified. I get it. Question is, what direction are you headed? Is there... A pattern of repentance in your life where your life is changing and has been changed over time. 
Or did you say, Pastor Dan, I said a prayer 30 years ago, became a Christian, but your life has never changed? That's something wrong. There's something wrong. If you became a Christian 30 years ago and there's no life change, that's like if, if a woman has a baby and 30 years later it's still an infant in the NICU. You would say something's wrong with the baby. 30 years later it's still in the NICU? What's going on here? In the same way we need to examine our faith. But the answer is we always flee from sin, realize that sin is not neutral. There's a choice to be made, me or God, and the answer is always to glorify God. That's the matter of Christian liberty. And Paul will wrap up Paul's argument, Lord willing, next week as we wrap up chapter 10. But may you understand the truth of this text. May those of us who are playing around with sin, those of us who are becoming what we worship, in a sinful way, repent. There is hope today. You don't have to stay the way you are. There's always a way of escape. There's always a way out. And it's through the cross of Christ. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, which enables and empowers our obedience, who changes our affections. And this all happens by faith. By faith in Christ alone. By God's grace alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. May you be set free from your sin. Perhaps you're here today, you're not even a Christian. That's step one. is to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Run to the cross. You're a sinner. He's the savior. If you believe in him and turn from your sin, he will save you. He died and rose again. Put your trust solely on him. For Christians who are playing around with sin, repent. Repent. Sin has probably affected your mind, your body, your soul in profound ways over the years. We need to keep marching forward in obedience to God, knowing that we're flawed and perfect people, but never making an excuse for what we do because of that. But we glory in this, that although I'm not everything I should be now, thank God I'm not who I used to be. And praise God, I will not stay like this forever. For one day we will be made new, glorified, just like him, when we see him, we shall be like him. And our worship that is transforming us into his glorious image will be complete. Let's pray. Oh God, grant repentance to hearts this morning. By your Holy Spirit, awaken the dead. May those in this room who do not know you in a saving way would you cause them to be born again? To blow upon their hearts by your spirit to awaken them, to give them life so they can see the things of the spirit of God. That the gospel would cease being foolishness. They would trust in Christ for salvation alone. 
God, would you help us in this room with the matter of Christian liberty? And we've seen in chapter 10 that Christian liberty also has, could have a potential negative effect on all of our lives. May we understand that sin, worship are the same and not neutral. We always worship. May you help us understand who we're worshiping, why we're worshiping them. And God, may you grant repentance to worship you and forsake ourselves to flee from sin, to flee from idolatry, that every second of our lives is an act of worship. Help us to propel us ourselves into thinking rightly about worship and to mortify, the, mortify our sin through the power of the gospel. And God, we look forward to the day when you make us all new, fully glorified, fully redeemed, away from this body of sin completely changing our affections. But God, in the meantime, as you sanctifying us progressively, may we see the pattern of our lives changing for the good. May we see us moving forward, not backwards. And God, would you enable our obedience for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing this hymn together very appropriately as we can consider this message We're never going to be the ones to do it, brothers and sisters. It's Christ in us. Yet not I, but Christ in me. That's the gift of grace. Let's sing.